This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. The latest school shooting in Texas last week, which killed 19 children, has once again put America's fixation with guns and gun ownership in the spotlight. This is the 27th school shooting to happen this year alone in the U.S. In 2020, gun violence became the number one cause of death for children and teenagers in the country. Why is it so difficult to legislate against gun violence in the U.S.? Joining me to discuss this today is Mike Lawler, Associate Professor for Criminal Justice at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. Mike, thank you for speaking with me today. Good morning, Shazana. Happy to be here. Let's start with getting an, a basic understanding of the legal context um, of gun ownership in the U.S. Now, we know that the right to bear arms is actually enshrined in the Constitution under the Second Amendment. What was the historical rationale for this? It's important to keep in mind the genesis of our nation here. Um, it was a revolution against the British monarchy. Um, and uh, in the aftermath of uh, our victory, basically, our, our, in our war of independence, um, a constitution was written, which set up the ground rules for how the government would function. There would be a Congress, there would be a president, there would be a Supreme Court. And uh, after they worked out those mechanics, um, people made the argument that the reason we fought this revolution was not because we wanted simply our own government, but we wanted our government that would not be like what we experienced under the British monarchy. In other words, we wanted protections from the government, you know, against the government getting carried away. And so that led to what we now call the Bill of Rights. Those are the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution. And each one of those sets out ground rules for what the government is allowed to do under any circumstances. So, for example, in the First Amendment, there's freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. And it's the Second Amendment that deals with firearms. But it's worth noting that after that, like, for example, the Fourth Amendment deals with uh, under what circumstances the police can search you and seize your belongings or place you under arrest. And, and each of these amendments is uh, a guarantee that the government cannot do certain things. Now, in the Second Amendment, uh, what it actually says is a well-regulated militia being necessary to a free state, comma, uh, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, right? That's what it says. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind that that was written in 1789. That's before we had bullets. You know, uh, the, the, the arms that were uh, used at the time are powder-fired muskets, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we didn't have police departments. We didn't have prisons. I mean, this is a long time ago. And uh, the reference to a well-regulated militia seems to me and many other people who just have common sense mm-hmm. It seems to have to do with not just individual people buying whatever kinds of weapons they want. It's like, you know, it may be necessary to protect the nation against, let's say, outside uh, invaders or domestic terrorists or whatever. And it it implies that. But that's not exactly how it's been interpreted over the years. Uh, All of these decisions are ultimately made by, by the United States Supreme Court. In other words, it's their job to interpret what the United States Constitution, or in particular, the Bill of Rights, really means. 
So how has the Supreme Court interpreted Second Amendment rights? Up until very recently, the United States Supreme Court had never ruled that a a law passed by a state, for example, violated the Second Amendment. Um, And it was a relatively new uh, development a little bit more than 10 years ago that the Supreme Court said, well, one law that was enacted in one place in the country violated the Second Amendment. And what that law basically said was that, except under very rare circumstances, you were not allowed to have a firearm in your home, right? Uh, And they said, that violates the Second Amendment. Okay. Uh, Now, the United States Supreme Court has another case in front of it, where the challenge is against a New York state law that says in order to carry a concealed handgun, you need to state a reason why you need this. And then the state decides whether that's sufficient or not. And the expectation is the United States Supreme Court will probably declare that law also to be a violation of the Second Amendment. And the reason I go through this is because this is the issue of the moment here, right? Can an individual state, and keep in mind the way the United States government is set up, there's 50 sovereign states, essentially, and each one has their own laws. They just are not allowed to pass a law that violates the United States Constitution. So it's kind of the dynamic here. Mm -hmm. And if the Supreme Court declares in the next few weeks that that New York state law is a violation of the Second Amendment, that will really only be the second time they've taken such an action. And this is this back and forth that's going on in our country. Now, beyond that, aside from what the Constitution actually says, uh, the, you know, I, I think it's well known that the United States has a very well-established gun culture, right? It's it maybe it dates back to the Wild West or where people were defending their frontier property as the nation expanded westward. And um, uh, but it's only the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years that um, th- this whole gun mentality has really made a quantum leap to where it is today. In other words, the politics of our nation are such that many people seem to believe it's almost like an article of faith, almost like a religious thing, a patriotic statement, not just to have one gun, but to have lots of guns. And they've gravitated towards this type of weapon, an AR-15, um, which many people have now chosen to own. And many of those people have chosen to own multiple AR-15s. This is a weapon that was created um, for wartime situations, but it's somehow uh, become available to the public in America. How or why did um, such a lethal weapon become so easily accessible to the American public? Well, uh, to answer, it requires a slight history lesson, right? Uh, The AR-15 is basically the civilian version of a military weapon. And the military weapon was invented or developed by this company called Armalite, hence the AR part, right? And um, it's specifically designed uh, to kill a lot of people as quickly as possible, as accurately as possible. I mean, that's what this weapon is designed to do. So, you know, starting in the late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, this became available on the civilian market. Um, as these guns began to uh, show up in uh, civilian population incidents, in many cases involving the police, in 1994, 
these weapons were banned in the United States. Uh, President Clinton was in office. There had been a fair amount of gun violence in the late 80s and early 90s, and the federal Congress passed a ban on uh, selling newly manufactured assault weapons to the civilian population. But as a compromise in that bill, President Clinton had to agree to sunset the law after 10 years, meaning the law would only last for 10 years, and if it wasn't renewed, it would disappear. And so come 2004, uh, there was a new president, President Bush. Uh, Republicans controlled the Congress. They tend to be more friendly to gun owners, to the National Rifle Association, for example. And uh, they did not renew that ban. The minute the ban expired, uh, gun manufacturers began to aggressively market these weapons to the civilian population because they realized they could make a lot of money selling these weapons. And and starting in 2004, you see a a huge proliferation of these AR-15 style rifles being sold around the country. Now, a number of states, including mine, had actually banned these weapons. And uh, as we sit here today in Connecticut, my state, it is illegal to buy or possess uh, one of these AR-15 type weapons. Same for New York and a number of other states. But in much of the rest of the country, especially Texas, uh, it's perfectly legal to buy these weapons. And I think most people are familiar with the, the school shooting here in Connecticut at Sandy Hook, right? And when that took place, you know, I should point out, you know, I was a member of the Connecticut legislature for 24 years and was very involved in all these gun policy uh, policy decisions. I was elected in 1986, and I was there until 2010. And in 2011, I went to work for Governor Malloy, who was the governor when the um, uh, the Sandy Hook shootings took place, and I was his criminal justice advisor. And so it uh, it was then that the shooting took place, and after that, Connecticut passed a whole set of new gun restrictions, including expanding the ban on assault weapons. And the reason I say that is the weapon that kid used in the Sandy Hook shooting at the time was technically legal in Connecticut, even though we had banned assault weapons in 1993. But the manufacturers had uh, found a way to modify these products so that they didn't fall under the ban. And that's what this kid had. After the incident, of course, we banned that weapon and a bunch of other weapons. But uh, And this is very significant, and this could have a big impact on um, the marketing of these weapons in the future. The manufacturer of that weapon that was used in Sandy Hook, an AR-15 style rifle, Remington, um, has been sued by the families in court. And uh, there actually is another federal law that on its face seems like it makes it impossible to sue a gun manufacturer uh, based on liability for someone using their products to kill other people, right? Ironically, in the United States, the manufacturer of any other type of product can be sued, but not firearms because there's a specific protection for them that was passed again when the Republicans controlled the Congress and the White House. But in that lawsuit, the main argument is that the manufacturer deliberately marketed this weapon to young teenage and uh, early 20-year-old boys. They used advertisements like earn your man card by buying our gun. And it's this type of aggressive marketing uh, that has led to the market being flooded with these weapons. 
So even though technically it's illegal in Connecticut, you can drive to Pennsylvania, which is not that far, and buy one of these perfectly legally. And it's this, uh, it, it makes it so easy for these weapons to fall into the hands, in the case of Texas, an 18-year-old boy who just had his birthday, who went down the street to his local gun shop, bought an AR-15. The next day went there, bought 350 rounds of ammunition for that weapon. And the day after that, bought another one of these AR-15s. And then four days later, went to that school on Tuesday and killed all those young children. And so this is the problem we're dealing with in the country. I'm speaking to Mike Lawler, Associate Professor at the University of New Haven on U.S. gun culture. We'll have more after the break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. If you've just joined us, this is Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar, and today I'm speaking to Mike Lawler, Associate Professor at the University of New Haven, to discuss U.S. gun culture in the wake of last week's deadly school shooting in Texas. Earlier, Mike, you painted quite a complex picture of federal and state laws on gun ownership and the loopholes in the legal framework. The First Amendment, which safeguards freedom of speech, religion and assembly, isn't without limitations. There are categories of speech that aren't protected, such as incitement to violence or violating copyright. Why aren't there any such limitations to the Second Amendment? Well, I mean, that's the question. Uh, There are... Uh, certainly many people in the United States, the the gun enthusiasts who think that there can be no restriction under any circumstances on anybody's right to keep and bear arms, right? That The Supreme Court has never said that, right? And Connecticut and many other states have very strict laws. We have very strict laws about gun ownership here in Connecticut. You can pass reasonable um, regulation or limitations on the right to keep and bear arms and without violating the Constitution. But it requires a state legislature to be willing to do it, right? And I think in a lot of these states, which are predominantly rural, um, where the gun culture is very well established, people tend to be less educated, that's where the the local elected officials are not going to do it, right? And that's what you see today, and that's why you saw what happened in Texas happen in Texas. So, I mean, the common perception is that Democrats are for gun control, Republicans are pro-gun ownership. Has that always been the case? Has that always been how the pie was split? And what actually explains the divide? Uh, no, it has not always been like that. Uh, the, 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 the original assault weapon ban I mentioned, in the federal one in 1994, was passed with a bipartisan vote in Congress, right? And uh, in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook murders here in Connecticut in 2012, Connecticut passed as I said earlier, a huge uh, array of restrictions on gun ownership. And that was uh, supported by uh, at least half of the Republicans in our state legislature, many of many of whom are sort of, quote unquote, pro-gun uh, legislators, because um, I would argue that they're very reasonable restrictions. Uh, you know, people who are law-abiding, responsible citizens can still go out and buy guns. It's not a problem. Uh, it's just regulated. And... Um, but I think it's part of the culture wars now, right? And I think uh, any, any, you know, you don't have to be an American to understand the significance of the, the, the emergence of Donald Trump on the American political scene. Not so much him as an individual, but what this movement that he appears to represent, which is really all about a culture war. It's, uh, in my opinion, it's all about fear, anger, resentment, 
Um, you know, it's, it's got to do with race and religion and national origin and sexual orientation. And, and the gun culture is one example of it. It's, it's, it's the, it's, it's the most visible one, I think, because periodically we have these mass shootings. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm actually optimistic that over time, um, we will uh, be able to pass national uh, gun regulations that make a lot of sense. You know, responsible people will still be able to have guns, but they probably won't be able to have these types of guns. You won't be able to go in on your 18th birthday and buy uh, military weapons when you, you know, are filled with rage and perhaps mental illness. So, uh, but I don't know that that's happening tomorrow. Right, right. So from what I gather, um, right now, the power to create those gun control laws really resides within states themselves. It has to be the states that um, decide on these laws. Is there anything that President Joe Biden can do at the federal law to enact some kind of gun control um, at the moment? Yes, the federal government could play a very significant role here. Uh, President Biden on his own cannot do a lot. Of course, to change the law, you need the Congress to vote for it and the president to sign it. Um, and I think, as some people are aware, uh, in, there, there are unique rules in the United States Senate. There's 100 members of the Senate, but there's this, quote unquote, filibuster problem where to pass anything, generally speaking, you need 60 votes, not 51. And 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 the, the Senate is evenly divided, 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. And it's almost impossible to enact anything as controversial as what we are discussing here. But if they decided to do it, there's a lot they can do. For example, you know, back in the 1930s, during Prohibition, when alcohol was banned, there was organized crime, you know, the mafia, uh, Al Capone, all this stuff. And back then, uh, it was uh, uh, the, the the organized crime figures were using fully automatic machine guns, right? And they were robbing banks and shooting at each other with machine guns. And in the 1930s, there was a federal ban on civilian ownership of, of fully automatic machine guns. And that's been the law since 1930s. And as a result, you don't see crimes being committed by people who've got fully automatic weapons. Now, the AR-15s are semi-automatic, meaning you have to pull the trigger one time to fire one shot. But I think that's an example of like, if they decided to do it, you'd probably see these AR-15s disappear. And they did do it in 1994, right? And it it was it had limited effect, but it was still significant. And, and I think there could be a federal ban on the manufacture of uh, these assault weapons for civilian purposes in the country. That would be very effective. And, and there's an irony here, what I'm about to describe is there's one proposal that has, based on public opinion polls, about 90% of the American people support it, including almost all gun owners. And that is a requirement that in order to buy a gun, you have to pass a background check. <laughs> we have a law like that, but it only applies to buying guns at, gu- at federally licensed gun stores. But once you buy that gun, you could sell it to your next door neighbor or to some guy on the street without asking any questions and not violating this federal law. So the proposal is to say that every sale of a gun has to be backed up with a background check to make sure the person is not dangerous or a convicted criminal, that type of thing. So uh, that might, if in fact the federal Congress passes a law, that might be the first one. And I think that would be very significant as a beginning of a process where we can get this under control.
Do you expect that to happen, I suppose, over the next few months before the midterm elections? How much of an issue could this be in the midterm elections come November? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And please don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. Um, I think it's more likely today than it was a week ago today. Uh, You know that two weeks ago, there was another mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, involving another 18-year-old who had an an assault weapon as well. If the history is any guide, it's quite likely between now and and our elections in November that there will be more of these. And I think if there continues to be a series of uh, mass shootings involving schools or churches or, or shopping centers, which is what has been happening for the past month or two here, then I think as each one of those takes place, it becomes more and more likely that Congress will take action. Uh, mainly because there's a simple thing they could do, which is what I just described, this universal background check proposal that is supported by almost everybody. Uh, the gun lobby, the people who manufacture these weapons, have resisted um, every conceivable restriction on gun ownership. So it's not like they're negotiating about the details. They just don't want anything. And and I think that can only be overcome, unfortunately, by more tragedies like we've just seen. And and as I said, if the history is any guide, that's probably going to happen. And and if that continues to happen, uh, I think it becomes more likely after each tragedy. On that sobering note, Mike, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I've been speaking to Mike Lawler, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of New Haven. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.